A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about the parables of the kingdom from Matthew 13. It was talking about Matthew 13, and it says, The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven. Several different things. We talk about what is the kingdom of heaven. And there's there are many things in the Bible that are a thing that happens now, and a thing that is to happen, and then a thing that will happen in completion, in fulfillment, in perfection, not until glory. And we look at Old Testament prophecy. If you think of the book of Joel, the book of Joel, a small little book, a lot happens. And we have the locusts. The theme of the book of the locusts is the, of Joel is that the locusts come in and they destroy. And why do they do that? Well, they do it because of the sin of the nation. And that's what all the Old Testament prophets are, are warning. And you can look at the book of Joel and say, well, what does the book of Joel mean? Does it mean Babylon came in? Yes, it means that because Babylon came in and the other nations came in to Israel and they stripped it like locusts. Does it mean something to come? Some say, well, does it mean a future Rome? Well, yes. What does it mean? The the final days. Yes, it means all these things. And to say it means one and not the other is to miss a large understanding of Scripture. When we go to the New Testament, there's no difference. <clears throat> there are things that are taught in the New Testament, particularly about the kingdom, that are things to come. But there are things that are now about the kingdom as well. And we as Christians are citizens of heaven. We are members of the kingdom. And the kingdom means that this is which God reigns over. Now, God reigns over everything. A bird does not fall unless the Father knows it and wills it. And they are fed. Jesus tells us this. Does that mean the birds are part of the kingdom? Well, they are under the reign of God. But are they part of the kingdom of believer priest? Well, no. That's what Christians are. And we are part of that kingdom now, and we're part of the kingdom that's to come. So there's a now and a not yet, and we live in both. We live in between, but we are in the now. So there are things about the kingdom that we need to understand to live life now and things we need to know about the kingdom to have the hope for what is to come because life is not easy and challenges will come and we will struggle. And that's part of being part of the kingdom. And we'll look at that. So when we talked about the parables of the kingdom and the great value of the kingdom, one of the things I referenced is that Matthew is very much about the kingdom. He's talking to Jews primarily, but he's talking to us as well. But he makes, keeps re- making reference to the kingdom. And where he begins to lay out the way the kingdom works is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you say all of the Gospels and all of the epistles and all of the Bible is about the kingdom. But when Jesus makes this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's the longest amount of words that we ever get of Jesus continuously. You have this Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it is about how to live in the kingdom. It is instructions for the kingdom. It is instructions for the Christian. It is instructions for those who live under the reign of God joyfully. And we do. Not always, but we do. So I I wanted to take these two weeks and kind of give an overview of just some things. We could teach the Sermon on the Mount every day for the rest of our lives and just scratch the surface. Because we're dealing with Jesus saying, this is how to live like me. Jesus is the only one who's fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount, but he has fulfilled it for us. 
and he's challenged us to live it. Now, before I go any further, I want to read you a prayer. Anybody heard this book, The Valley of Vision? I highly recommend this book. If you order one of these, you will not be disappointed if you read it. And it looks good on the shelf, too, I guess, but I have too many books that do that. <clears throat> this is a book that was collected. It was, it was put together, I don't know how many years ago, about 20 years ago. And it's a collection in its modern English of Puritan prayers. The Puritans were very devout in trying to live lives that followed the Sermon on the Mount. Now, they're often accused of being legalists. And we tend to have our idea of the Puritans by Nathaniel Hawthorne and by others and just think of those. Well, they were blowhard, killjoys, unforgiving. That's not the Puritans. If you read the Puritan writings, if you read the pastors, a lot of them, their sermons were meticulously manuscripted. It was not uncommon for a Puritan to preach with 40 points. Sometimes they'd say, well, I bored you. I'm sorry with so many points. Today, I'll just not list the points and do the same amount of hour-long sermon. But they loved the Lord, and they wanted to be holy. And that is should be our desire, too. I want to read you this prayer to start, and I'm going to come back to it. This is called Self-Knowledge. Searcher of hearts, it is a good day to me. When thou givest me a glimpse of myself, sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, family, church, fare worse because of my sins, for sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that God is not angry with them. Let me not take other good men as my example and think I am good because I am like them. For all good men are not so good as thou desirest, are not always consistent, do not always follow holiness, do not feel eternal good in sore affliction. Show me how to know when a thing is evil, when I think it is right and good, how to know when what is lawful comes from an evil principle such as desire for reputation or wealth by usury. Give me grace to recall my needs, my lack of knowing thy will in Scripture, of wisdom to guide others, of daily repentance, want of which keeps thee at bay, of the spirit of prayer, having words without love, of zeal for thy glory, seeking mine own ends, of joy in thee and thy will, of love to others. And let me not lay my pipe too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. I want to repeat that last phrase because this is where we're going to start. Let me not lay my pipe too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. So we talk about the kingdom of God, and we talk about laying the pipe to the fountain, but not going far enough. Because what we have in Christ is salvation. We have justification. Jesus died in our place once and for all. We are justified in God's sight. I can sin, and I will sin, and that changes nothing about what Christ did. That justification is eternal. 
But that's not all we have in Christ. We talked about justification. We talked about sanctification. And what the Sermon on the Mount is talking about is sanctification for those who have been justified. Those people are in the kingdom. The kingdom is full of sinners, but sinners who have been justified and sinners who are to live holy lives. This is what the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is saying. Do this. But how do we do that? The, 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 king, the kingdom is a present and it is a future. John Piper said this. He said, the kingdom is future promises sandwiched by present assurance. One thing we get is we enter into the Sermon on the Mount. We have things that we are called to do and things we are called to know that have been done. The things that are active and things that are passive. Justification is passive. It happens to us. We're not the doer. Christ did that. But sanctification is both. We cannot be sanctified without the power of the Holy Spirit and what God has done. Yet, our sanctification is things we do. We are to live holy lives. And God will complete it. We recognize that nobody will finalize it. There's one thing that finalizes your sanctification, and that's your homegoing when we meet him in heaven. Let's talk about passive and active. We've got some English teachers in here. If you ever write or you read or you speak, or if you recall learning English language, you have active sentences and passive, active and passive verbs. And one thing you try to do when you write is to use active verbs because they, they're stronger. And one thing we tend to do when we write is we use passive verbs because they take more words. And we think, well, it sounds better. It's a little more florid language. My sentence is twice as long. And I said the same thing. And actually, you didn't. You said less when you use a passive verb. A great example is Jenny threw the ball. That's an active verb. Who threw the ball? Jenny. Who did the work? Jenny. What did the ball do? It got thrown. It was the passive actor here. Something happened to it. But Jenny did the work. The passive sentence is, the ball got thrown by Jenny. The ball was thrown by Jenny. So now who's doing the work? Well, the ball's being thrown. Again, that's passive. But the ball is now the object we're talking about. And who just happened to be involved in the throwing? Jenny. It's not, it may sound fancy, but it's not quite as strong. Yet, did the ball get up and throw itself? No, it didn't. So both sentences say a truth. One's a bit different. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount are passive things that are things that are done to us that are a fact about our relationship in the kingdom and things we are to do. We are said, do this. And Jesus said, do this. So it is not passive to be a member of the kingdom and sanctification itself is not passive. One thing that a lot of Christians make the mistake of, a lot of people make the mistake of, is they think, okay, I'm saved and now God keeps doing the work. He does keep doing the work. But we're not a bump on the log. We're being given grace to live holy lives. Lives that are set apart by God. And it's not a passive reign. It is an active reign. God is actively doing things. Another mistake a lot of people think is is to say, like, God says, okay, you're saved. The big issue's taken care of. At the end of time, we'll start back up. But we're going to put things on pause for now. i got other things to do. i got other people to save. 
You got that taken care of? Just wait. Everything will be perfect in the end. The in-between is important. The in-between is very important. And then the other mistake is to say, you got that taken care of. You're saved. Now prove that that wasn't a mistake. Show me you're worth it. Prove your metal. I'm, I'm, I'm putting words in the Lord's mouth, which is dangerous, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, okay, you trusted me. Now prove you do it. That's not what he's saying. Prove you're worth it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying prove what you already are, though our actions do that. But we don't have to prove that. We don't have to earn what we've already been given. But by what we've been given is the ability to show that we are what we are, which is saved people. Going to Galatians 5. It'll be on the screens. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. I'm going to skip down to 22. So he says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we live by the Spirit. Do we live by the Spirit? Yes. It is the Spirit that drew us. It is a spirit that holds us, a spirit that keeps us. We're going to sing a song today. We're going to sing His Forever, which we've sang for years. And one thing I, I probably should do from time to time, and I don't do it very often, is just stop and explain and make sure we understand what we're singing. Because one of the acts of singing in congregational church, in congregational songs in church is we're slowly putting things in that we repeat, but we don't always think about them. And I hope you think about the words we sing. I think about them. Sometimes I think about them saying, why are we singing this song? Most of the time, though, I, I'm amazed at the grace of God when we sing about the grace of God. And the first line of this song, I want you to hear it. It's not on the screens. But we're going to sing this today. Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me ere I knew him, before I knew him. Drew me with his cords of love. Tightly bound me to him. Round my heart still closely twined the ties that none can sever. For I am his and he is mine forever and forever. And we sing that line, he drew me with his cords of love. That is what the spirit does. The spirit draws us to Christ. We did not happen upon Christ and just say, well, seemed like the better choice. And Boom, the kingdom opens up to us because we had a wise decision. No, the Lord says none would come except the spirit draws. And the spirit draws us and he draws us with cords. The song uses the metaphor of a cord, of a rope. And you're drawn to the rope. It's like a horse that doesn't want to be broken. But if you can get the rope around it, the horse will get broken at some point. But without the rope, the horse runs wild. The spirit gets around our heart. And gets a tight grip. And here's what's great. Never lets go. 
God never lets go of us. His spirit is still, as we sing in this song, round my heart still closely twined. The ties that none can sever. That's the word of the Christian who says, I am held and I am kept by the spirit. Therefore, I can live the Sermon on the Mount. I can have the fruit of the spirit. We need the spirit and we need his grace. And we have to actively use the tools that he's given us. So let's go back to Matthew 5. I love that we are in a church, we're in classes right now, and our pastor and Brother Barry in here, we focus on verse by verse and passage by passage. We we love the word, we look in the word. Sometimes, I've said this before, if we spend too much time going verse by verse, sometimes we lose the big picture. The Sermon on the Mount is a great big picture. I encourage you to take it, read 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting. It does not take very long. And you should be overwhelmed by the grace of God and the challenge that exists. If you are an unbeliever and you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can come away with two things. I'm a pretty good person because I can do all of that. Which means you don't understand it. Or you'd think, no one can do that. Who could turn the other cheek? Sure, if somebody... Cuts me off in traffic. I can let that go. But what if they cut me off in traffic. And there's an accident. And I lose my family. How do I let that go? How do you forgive? How do you forgive unless you've been forgiven? There are many challenges. The Sermon on the Mount presents us things that we can't do apart from Christ. Okay. And it is. It starts. In chapter 5, and he says in this first verse, Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... We'll stop there, and then we have the Beatitudes. But the first thing he does is he sees the crowds. Why were the crowds following him? He's doing miracles. He's teaching. He's beginning to teach. He's saying things. But mainly they're following because of the miracles. And he sees the crowd, and his intent is to teach... But what does he say? Who is the first audience in this verse? It's his disciples, the ones that want to learn of him. They're not just there for the miracles, but they all get to hear. And Jesus intends for them to hear, and he intends for us to hear. But we fit in that category. We are his disciples. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We'll stop there. So we talked about active and passive. Let's talk several things about the Beatitudes. You have a lot of promises here. They shall. But at the very beginning, it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we just talked about in kind of the beginning here, what is the kingdom of heaven? Is it the thing to come? 
or is a thing that is already here and will be completed in time? Progressively, yes, but in a final moment it will be completed. But it is already here. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and he's saying the very first out. Here is many in, in Israel believe here's the Messiah. He will deliver us right now. He will take the throne and the Romans are out of here. And the first thing he says to this crowd is blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor. Many of these people probably are poor and they're probably not happy. None of us would think, you know what would make me really happy? is to be poor. To lose it all. Blessed are those who mourn. I don't think many of us think, you know what would really make me happy? To be sad. Sadness makes me happy. That doesn't make sense. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Jesus is making a promise. I will comfort those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So three things. He starts out and says, these are good things. These will make you happy. Poor, mourn, and meek. This is a people that are living under bondage of Rome. They're living under bondage of a religious system gone wild on the law that wanted to apply the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. And Jesus is coming in here saying, I'm going to explain the law to you. It's more than you ever thought. Here's the foundations of the law. And you have to live all these other things out too. But you've got to understand, if you look at someone with lust, you've you've broken the law. If you are angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. Jesus just made the law a lot harder if you stick to the letter of the law. And you don't love the spirit of the law. But he says, you're meek. If you're conquered and you're living in a a world where you dare not speak out against the Roman authorities or the religious authorities, you'd you'd feel a little meek. You'd feel, you'd mourn in your spirit. You'd be poor. In Luke, when recounting the Sermon on the Mount, it says, blessed are the poor. Matthew adds, in spirit. And some people would say, okay, well, Matthew said not all poor. He's just saying poor in spirit. What I think Matthew is doing is saying, The core of what it means to be poor is down in your spirit. It doesn't exclude poor. It includes it all. Poor of whatever. So Jesus starts and he says, to be happy, here's here's my kingdom. Tell you all about it. Happy people will be poor, meek, and mournful. And you think, oh, not sure I want to be a part of this. How can we be those things? Well, because... We will inherit the kingdom. We already are in the kingdom. We're heirs of the king. And we will be comforted. We shall inherit the earth. So he gives us a promise that's already being fulfilled and two that will come. And he says, if you want to be happy, let's take the second half of here. You need to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if you want to be happy, you need to be comforted. And if you want to be happy, you need to inherit the earth. We live in a world and we've grown, and as Christians, I think we understand that the earth is cursed and every person has a broken spirit that's bent towards sin. Even after we're saved, we still got a sinful flesh that's just dragging around. 
and we think, I don't want any of this. This whole earth is rotten. This whole earth is cursed. But God made it and said it was good. And he will make it again in the end. That's what Revelation shows us, other parts of the Bible. It is a good thing to want to live in God's world, including this earth. You may not think it when we're driving around West Texas, how beautiful the earth is. But he made it all, and it's broken. There's parts of it that aren't the beauty they should be. We've never in our, in our mind can we experience the things that are to come. But he will give us a new earth, and it's a good thing. The earth is a good thing. Our bodies will be good things and to be desired. Not in a sexual way, but as a good thing that God created. So he says, to be comforted, to inherit the earth, and to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those are good things, and you'll be blessed. So let's go back and look at that comforted one. Let's just think through these a little harder. If it's good to be comforted, if happy people are the ones that are comforted, what does that mean for the people of the kingdom? If you need to be comforted, what's that mean for people of the kingdom? We will hurt. We will mourn. We will suffer. And that's part of what it means to be part of the kingdom. And we got to say, God, couldn't you made the kingdom a little different than that? And I think, well, in the, in the future, the kingdom will not, there will be no tears. But now there are tears. And what I think the Bible teaches clearly, and I think Jesus says in this one line, is you will mourn and you will suffer. And there's a purpose for it. And here's the other promise he's given us. I'm going to give you the grace to get there. And part of the mourning is because I'm giving you the tools to make it through the suffering. I'm not giving you tools in vain. I'm not giving you tools. I'm not giving you grace that you won't use. You're going to have grace through the suffering. You're going to have grace through the pain. You're going to have grace through your sin to overcome it on your way to holiness. Through your challenges. We need God's grace. And there is a life we live and it's full of unexpected things, unplanned things, difficult things, unwanted things. And we find ourselves in those things. But we need to know and trust that God has given us grace And those things came about providentially because he rules the world. There are no accidents with God. We're never alone. He is with us. His spirit is in us. And he's given us these tools. So, back to active passive. Do we live in the world through passive and say, man, I suffered, but God's going to make it all good in the end. But I'm going to mourn until the day I die because he's given us tools to actively work through the suffering. And if you look at the saints, if you read biographies of people like we were, we've been reading and watching some things about Corey Ten Boom. And you think of many of the saints of, I say saints, we're all saints. But the people that are well known, martyrs, many of them die in joy. Brother Barry quoted a great story a few weeks back and I think we quoted a long time ago of two English martyrs that were burned at the stake for preaching the word. When they were told, only preach what the king says to preach. They said, we're going to preach the word. He said, well, I'm going to, you're going to burn. And at the stake, as the flames were going up, the one encouraged the other in saying, I'm going to paraphrase this, which is terrible because it's a great quote, be of good cheer and courage, for today we light the flame that will never go out in England. And that was the word. Now, Some question is to, I don't think it will ever go out because God's church will be undefeated. It will struggle as we struggle. But we owe our 
English Bibles to some of those guys who stood up in the flames, and they did it joyfully. They had the tools in God's grace to be sanctified. They weren't just sitting around waiting for God to glorify them and to make them perfect. They were working on it. But it takes patience. Part of what patience is is to say, Lord, I trust what you're doing. And I trust you've given me what I need to endure this and to grow and to become more out of it. Let's let's carry on there. He, He said, for the kingdom of heaven. Here's a quote from John Calvin on this scripture. He says, we see that Christ does not swell the minds of his own people by any unfounded belief or harden them to feelings of obstinance. So he's saying Christ does not bring about suffering. He does not bring about being poor. He doesn't do that to make you kick against him. He doesn't do that so that you would believe something that isn't true, which a lot of preaching today says this will all be fulfilled in this life and you should expect complete happiness in this life. And if you're suffering, it's because you're doing something wrong. You're not giving enough because you're supposed to have the, I'm trying not to quote any book titles by saying this, but you're, you're supposed to have the great life now. No, that's unfounded, as, as Calvin has said here. He says he does this to lean, to entertain the hope of eternal life. And it animates his people to patience by assuring his people that in this way they will pass into the heavenly kingdom of God. The road is narrow. We would prefer the wide road. But the road we need to be on is the narrow road. And there can be suffering on it. When we rely on the mercy of God, when we're poor in spirit, and don't murmur against God, God proves himself. Let's, let's finish this uh, Beatitudes and then a few closing remarks. And then I want to pick up again next week and we'll dig into these a little bit more. He continues in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then he turns the, the case a little bit now. These again, we say, are these totally future promises? Because he says, they shall, they shall, they shall. I would say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, what are we called now? Sons of God. So it's not necessarily exclusive to the future here. But verse 10 is definitely in the now. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. When is faith most vibrant? When in your week or your month would you say like, I really feel like I have the, I I don't want to say the living faith and say that you don't have faith, but there's a moment you can say like, throughout my week, those 168 hours, these are the ones where I'm, really feel my faith is in its most vibrant 
vigorous form. And a lot of people would say, well, church. And there's a lot of reasons that church should be a time when our faith is really energized, right? We're in fellowship with other believers, spirit-indwelled believers. And God said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be also. There's something unique happening in the gathering of his people, in a large number of his people. Not to say that a church of ten doesn't have less spirit than the church of a thousand. No. We can't quantify the spirit like that. But when we sing songs of truth, when we hear teaching of truth, when we read our Bibles, we should feel invigorated in our spirit, in our Christian worldview, and view of ourselves. We should be. But if that's the only time when you feel that vigorousness of being a Christian is in the one, two, three hours of church a week, then how are you living your life? You're living it like everyone else. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are to live our lives like the aroma of Christ so that others, so when we're gathering, we smell, as a metaphor, we should smell like Christ. We should be like Christ to each other. And in doing so, when we're like Christ to the world, what will the world do? Jesus just told us. They will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And what does he say to do? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we look at the Old Testament prophets, I think we're amazed at... One, so many of them, God just said, it's time to prophesy, Joe. It's time, you're going to do this for me. And they said, yes, Lord. Or some of them said, uh, no, Lord, I'm going to go to Tarshish. And uh, he said, nope, I'm going to get you in a fish. You're still going to prophesy for me. But they did it joyfully. And I think this verse is incredible because it says, look at those Old Testament prophets. Look at those names in the books. And some of them didn't write books. Some of them were in those books. And he says, you're the same as them. They served the Lord joyfully, even though they suffered. So as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, and again, I encourage you, take it this week and read 5 through 7, 5, 6, 7. Read it several times. Take a big chunk of it. You've got your other Bible reading. I don't want to throw you off there, but you can read it pretty fast. You can put it on audio Bible. You don't have to buy one. There's things you can do that with. Read it together with someone. And look at the challenge that we have, but also the hope that we have. Because everything God has challenged us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, he's given us the power to do. Every sin, he said, you must be victorious over. Not just by the cross, which we're not victorious over. Christ was. And thankfully so. But he says every sin that's called out in the Sermon on the Mount... And Jesus does it in a way that he calls out a lot. We have victory over through the grace that God is pouring out on us to live holy lives. Not just to hope that we will have heaven someday despite our sinfulness. We get both. We get the grace of justification, the grace of eternal life, which we have as a believer. That we have the grace to live holy lives. Even though we fall and stumble, he sets us on a path and he gives us the tools to get there. Let's pray. Here we go.
Father God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your salvation, that we have righteousness that we did not earn and we could not earn, that you see Christ in us, Lord. Lord, help us as we go out in this world that other people would see Christ in us, Lord. And I pray that you would work in their hearts, that it would be a sweet aroma. And they would come to know you through the witness of your people, as you called us to do. Lord, but we thank you for the grace that lets us live our lives pursuing holiness, Lord. Forgive us when we fail. Remind us, is, is this Puritan prayer that we looked at, Lord, that we fail in so many ways. And we only have one role model, and that's Jesus. Help us to live up to what he did in fulfilling the law and showing your glory in it and doing it joyfully, Lord. Challenge us as we go into the service now. We pray for Pastor Sam as he teaches. I pray, Lord, you help us to worship you uh, with grateful hearts, grateful for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.